gather our thoughts God enables us on verse 11 where the apostle tells us not to be lagging in diligence but to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit serving the Lord these are uh, three descriptive terms describing of course what the Christian is like or at least what the Christian ought to be like because well as we well know sometimes the Christian can lag in diligence sometimes the Christian may not be fervent in spirit but nonetheless this is our calling not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord. Now, the more you look at these three descriptive terms, the more it is that obvious that they belong together and that they're, in fact, closely related to each other. They don't just stand there as three separate items. They actually have a close relationship. The controlling one is really the last one. We are serving the Lord. That describes the work that you do and that I do too as Christians. It really belongs to all the Lord's people. They all serve the Lord. Of course, it's more directly applicable to those who are called to serve him, especially as these men are called to serve him today, either as elders and deacons, but nonetheless, it's the work of all believers to serve the Lord. And in fact, that descriptive term doesn't just describe the work that we do, it also incidentally reminds you who you are as the Lord's servant. And I'll come back to that a little bit later because it is very important to note that serving the Lord means serving your master and serving him as his servant. So there's a relationship inside these words. There's no doubt about that and that is important. But the emphasis falls on the fact that this is your work. You are to serve your Lord and your Master. And you'll notice that the two other uh, terms here or the two other descriptive terms are describing how you do that work or how you serve the Lord. In other words, you serve him with diligence and you're not to be found lagging in that diligence. And then again, you serve him with fervency of spirit. Whatever that means, you must serve the Lord fervently. And you mustn't cool in that fervency because it's likely that at times you may. Now let's look at these things. The work that you do, you serve the Lord, and the way in which you do it, diligently and fervently. So first of all, you serve the Lord. Now I mentioned a minute ago that this expression doesn't just describe your duty. It also describes a relationship between you and your Saviour. Now there are many ways of describing the relationship that you have with Christ as a Christian. 
And the Bible doesn't confine it to one. And there are reasons for that. There are some things taught in one relationship that aren't taught in another. Christ is your elder brother. Christ is your shepherd. Christ is your friend. All these are important and there are many, many others. But the one that's brought before us here is the fact that he is your Lord and that you are his servants. And uh, Jesus, of course, reminded the disciples of that when he said to them, You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, he says, For so I am. And don't, of course, forget that. When you call me Lord and Master, remember what that means. Because being a servant of a Lord here doesn't mean uh, working for a living. It means being owned by someone. In other words, a slave. When Peter addressed his letter to those he was writing to, which of course includes ourselves too, he referred to himself as a bond servant and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word bond servant is interesting there. And I think the reason the the New King James uses the word bond servant is because actually the word means a slave. And there's something about the word servant that doesn't quite convey that, because a servant is at liberty Uh, to get a job and to leave a job. A slave isn't. What distinguishes a slave is that he himself is owned by his Lord and his Master. And that is an important descriptive term, reminding you of your relationship with your Lord too. He owns you. He has property in you. You are altogether his Paul reminds the Corinthians of that when they came out of a very immoral city and a very immoral lifestyle, when everyone around them really was using their body in any way that they chose to use it. He says to them, now he says as Christians, you are not your own, your body is not your own, neither is your soul or spirit your own. You were bought with a price, he says, you are the Lord's. We are slaves, and the Lord is our master. Now that affects really, in a way, everything that we do. Not just in connection with the specific commands that the Lord lays upon us, but really the way that we live our whole life, in the sense that we are always on duty. A slave is always on duty. There is no time at which... He's off duty. The same is true with you as a Christian. Now, as an elder, you can be off duty, or a minister may be off duty at various points, but as Christians, never. Never. We always represent his name, and we always look after his interests, and we are to make sure that we do everything for his glory, even the smallest things. The Apostle Paul even reminds us that our eating and drinking is to be done like that. That's one of the reasons we say grace before meals. Not the only reason, but it's one of them. It's a reminder to us, as Paul says, that whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. Or as he says to the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, you do it conscious, that you do it before God, 
that you do it unto God, seeking God's blessing in it and upon it. <clears throat> and our whole life is to be viewed like that. That's really what the Apostle means here at the beginning of chapter 12, when he beseeches us by the mercies of God that we present our bodies. Now the body there isn't exclusive of the soul or separate from the soul. It's the body as containing the soul. In other words, all of you. Don't just present your soul. Present your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. A walking, talking sacrifice. Holy. Acceptable to God, he says, because that is your reasonable service. A word which means worship. Let your life be an offering. An offering to your Lord and to your master. But of course we can break that down. Certainly the whole of life is to be given to God. But there's ways in which God wants that sacrifice to act itself out practically. First of all, we serve himself. Then we serve his people. And then indeed we serve the world. We serve himself first of all, and the highest form of service we give to God is actually our worship itself. When we offer him praise in prayer and in song and in the hearing of his word, whether it's read or whether it's preached. And we're to keep that worship pure and we're to offer it from a pure heart to the glory of God. After all, he commands that to worship him not just in truth, but to worship him in spirit and in truth. So we serve God in worship. We also serve the Lord by serving his people. It's part of our living sacrifice in verse 10 to be kindly affectionate to one another. Now that's a reference to Christians relating to each other with brotherly love in honour giving presence to one, preference to one another. Or again in verse 13, we are to distribute or to share, to meet the needs of the saints and we are to be given over to hospitality. Or as um, the King James Version puts it very graphically in uh, 1 Corinthians, describing the household of Stephanus in the church of Corinth, he tells us that they addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. It's a very interesting expression, a very interesting translation. They addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. You all know what an addict it is, what an addict is like. Well, that's the word that the King James Version uses for the translation, and it's a good one. It conveys really what the Greek is saying. They addicted themselves to ministering to the saints. So to serve the Lord's people is to serve the Lord. And you serve the Lord's people best when you view it as a service to the Lord. And in fact, once you view it as a service to the Lord, it transforms the way in which you see your service for the Lord's people. Again, I'll say something more about that in a minute. But as well as that, you serve the world too. And I think in verse 17, he moves on beyond inter-Christian relationship 
to the way in which you relate to others. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight, notice, not of brothers, but of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, others need to look after themselves, but as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men and do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. So we serve the Lord by generally doing everything to his glory, by worshipping him and keeping his commandments, by serving the Lord's people, and by having a spirit of service to the world too. But in all these things, you are the Lord's servants. Now, at every single ordination and induction, whether it's elders, deacons, or ministers, I always make a point of mentioning this. I do it very deliberately because this is misunderstood and seriously misunderstood. You are not servants of people, but servants to people. You are servants of the Lord. He is your master. People are not your masters. Sometimes you find office bearers who do the wrong thing and their justification for doing the wrong thing is because the people wanted them to do it and they say we are representatives of the people. The people elected us into office. The people want us to do this so we do it because we are there to serve them. No, that is to misunderstand. That is to be a kind of politician. In fact, it's to lower yourself to the level of a certain kind of counsellor. Even, even a counsellor would not see his duty quite like that. Your duty is to serve God. He is your master. He wants you to serve the people with an accountability to him. You do his will. You give an account to him. Never ever forget that. And to office bearers, let me urge that upon you. It's extremely important whether we are existing office bearers or new office bearers, God's your master. The church isn't your master. You serve the church, but she is not your master. God is your master. That is why you must be careful not to seek uh, people's popularity, the world, or even the church's approval. Sometimes you must go against the church's approval because God is your master, not the church. Bear that in mind. You serve the church, but the Lord is your master. So just bear that in mind. Now this thought of being God's servant and doing everything for him, I think just before I move on, affects our lives really in, in three different ways when we really think about it. And I'll just mention these in the passing. You can elaborate on them yourself as you think about them. They more or less impress myself in this way when I read it and when I think of the expression serving the Lord. Three ways in which it affects us. First of all, it searches your life. Certainly searches mine. Even in that general sense, are you satisfied that the life that you're living, the choices that you make, even in connection with what you do with your time and your energy, are you satisfied that it is something you can offer your Lord and your Master? Something you can give an account for? Is it something that you're doing for Him? Something that has 
his glory in view? Can you offer them, in other words, as part of your acceptable sacrifice to the Lord? More specific things too. In your worship of God, are you sure that you are bringing that service to the Lord as you should? Your prayer, your singing. It's easy to be negligent in these things. Sometimes in our personal worship, sometimes in our family worship. Sometimes we offer these things and instead of the prayer being the thing that's heard, it's the yawning and the groaning and the sighing and the creaking of chairs. Perhaps even in the public worship itself, the, the song is sung with indifference, without thought. The apostle says, sing with the understanding when you sing. Is your understanding engaged in what you're actually doing? Or is it more or less rote? Something that you've always done in the preaching? Do you listen? I mean, actively, engagingly listen. And when the word of God is read, do we hear? If we offered this service of worship to God here, we're offering it. I mean, that's what we're doing. We are offering a service a liturgia, a liturgy to God. Is he pleased with it? Is he pleased with me? And is he pleased with you? And again, even my service of the Lord's people or yours. Is it really the kind of service that we should give to our master? Do we serve the Lord's people for his sake? Do we think about that when we even do the smallest act of kindness to the Lord's people? Uh, sometimes you grudge it, maybe it's somebody comes round you wish hadn't come round, or something like that. The cup of tea that you give, is it for the Lord's sake? Or even loving my neighbour as myself. You're to love your neighbour as yourself. Do you love him or her for the Lord's sake? Are you serving the Lord when you love your neighbour? It searches your life. Definitely does. It searches mine. But the second thing it does is it elevates life. It should elevate the way you view your life and the way in which I view mine. Because after all, it gives it meaning and purpose. There's a lot of life that's routine. A lot of life that's mundane and sometimes it can become dull. But that's immediately transformed when you remember it's for God. When even your washing of your family's dishes is done for God, that elevates that task. Whatever task it does, is it for the Lord? Do it then, and do it well. Even if no one else values it, and that of course is what often happens. Here you are especially serving the Lord's people, or perhaps even serving your family, and they don't seem to appreciate it. Now there's a lot to be said about that, that can be said another time, maybe, in this place. But it's not for them ultimately you do it, is it? If you are serving the Lord when you're doing that, that elevates that task. How different your attitude, doing anything that the Lord lays before you, if you're doing it for Him and for His glory. You're manning the door there, or manning the door downstairs. Who are you doing that for? Well, the way you see that, radically affects how you do it. The minute it's for the Lord, it becomes a cheerful duty. doesn't matter if you open the door for someone and they walk in and they don't appreciate it for 
It's for the Lord you do it. Elevates it. As our Lord famously said, even a cup of cold water will not lose its own reward. God notices the cup of cold water. God notices it. God does. So it elevates life as well as searching your life. But this idea that you're also serving the Lord sweetens life as well. And I'm saying it sweetens life because everything that's done in the Lord and for the Lord becomes what the Bible calls a good work. Now good works are things that have sometimes a strange reputation, perhaps largely in Protestant or Reformed circles because people are afraid of good works. And that's because they always think of of works in contrast with faith and the danger of trying to earn your way into heaven by good works. Now, some people try to earn their way into heaven by works, all right, but what the Bible calls good works are different things. Good works are things that people do in the Lord and they do them by faith. And because they do them in the Lord, for the Lord, and by faith, they become good works. There's a whole section in your confession of faith about good works and how they are good works and what makes them good works. And the fact of the matter is that what's so wonderful about a good work is that God rewards it. And you say, well, it's dangerous to think of God maybe rewarding something because you might start to do it for a reward. Well, of course, there's always that danger. But the fact that that danger is there doesn't take away the glory and the beauty of it. That the work that you do in the Lord and for the Lord, God calls good. And because it is good, he rewards it. And he rewards it not because you earned it, but because he saw fit to reward it. And he loves to reward it and to show that kind of kindness to his people. Because that's the kind of God that he is. If you don't know the difference between a reward being given and a reward being earned, um, let me just put it to the, in this very kind of simple way. Suppose I, I have a, a daughter, for example, and I give her a particular task to do. And let's say she does the task and I decide to give her five pounds for the task. That five pounds wasn't earned, but it was a reward freely given. What I mean by saying it wasn't earned is very simple. She's my daughter. She needs to do it anyway because I told her so. But the fact that I was pleased with what she did meant that I gave the five pounds. Not earned, but given. Given in gratitude, given in love, given in affection. And a master can say to the servant, you are an unprofitable servant. You've just done what was your duty to do. But he could also say, well, I love my servant, so here you are. That, friends, is good works and the way in which God rewards them. And let's go a step further than that, because we should go a step further than that. It's not only the case that God rewards a good work, but, and we need to be careful here, all right, it's also the fact that there is nothing wrong with looking to such a reward and anticipating such a reward, providing you don't think you're earning it. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it at all because the Bible tells us that you can look forward to it and anticipate it. When Moses made his most difficult choices in Egypt to reject the rewards of Egypt and to identify himself with the suffering people of God, 
We're told that he made that choice because he had respect to the recompense of the reward. He, he recognized that there was a reward. In fact, when you strip it all back and you think about it, you wouldn't have become a Christian unless you were looking at some kind of reward. Think about this. I mentioned the cup of cold water a minute ago. Follow that verse through. Think of what the Lord actually said. Whoever gives one of these a cup of cold water. In fact, he says only. Whoever gives only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, he shall by no means lose his reward. The Lord is not reluctant to use the expression reward for a good deed done in his name. And with a single eye to his glory. So remember that when you sweep the floor. Remember that when you go to visit a saint in need. Remember that when you count a collection. Remember that when you open a door. Remember that when you bring a meal to someone who needs a meal because they're sick and laid aside. Remember it. Not only is it a good work, it's a work that the Lord will reward providing you do it conscious that you are a servant. You're not earning anything. The minute that spirit comes in, you're certainly in trouble. And perhaps I'll see a little more about that be before I finish. But that's your calling to serve the Lord, especially you today as elders and as deacons. Now, how do you do it? That's what the text brings us to. You're to serve the Lord, not lagging in diligence and with fervency of spirit. Now, in Christianity, how you do a thing is just as important as the thing that you do. There's a saying that says, it isn't what you do, it's the way that you do it. Well, in Christianity, it is what you do, and it is the way that you do it. Motive is very, very important. The spirit in which you do something is extremely important. The first way in which you're to serve the Lord, and let elders and deacons especially note, but all of us note too, the first thing to note is that you serve him diligently. And you're not to lag in that diligence. The Greek word translated diligence here means thoroughness. Seeing it through. Not just beginning a thing, but finishing it. And this kind of, this kind of thing is best taught uh, children, really. Yeah. Just the ability, not just to begin something, but to see it through and to finish it. There are some people whose lives are characterized by things that are begun and not finished. There's got to be a thoroughness, a diligence in it. Like Solomon says when he's preaching to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, which means the preacher, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might unto the Lord. Notice how he adds that unto the Lord there. It's because that's so important for, for doing the thing. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever God puts in front of you in providence, whether it's in home, in family, in, in work, in school, in college, in office, do it. Do it with all your might unto the Lord, he says. I think he's more or less getting at the same thing here. Do it thoroughly. Whether that duty is sacred or secular, do it and do it unto the Lord. Especially your ruling. I mean, here you'll notice in chapter 12, he, he has a special word for office bearers, actually. <coughs> When he talks about serving God with our whole body, in verse 6 he says, Having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let's use them. With prophecy, let's prophesy in proportion to our faith. 
ministry, serving, let us use it in serving. He who teaches, let him use that gift in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives, let him do so with generosity or liberality. He who leads, let him do it thoroughly with diligence. That's our special reference, I think, possibly to ruling elders. He who shows mercy, perhaps you've got deacons particularly there, let them show mercy with cheerfulness. Do it diligently. Now it's easy to begin anything. Well, there's a Gaelic saying that says, that can be true sometimes, sometimes it's not so easy to begin. But by and large it's easy to begin a thing, not so easy to see it through and to finish it. An elder too can be enthusiastic in thinking of being able to help the Lord's people by way of counsel or admonition, encouragement, advice or rebuke or any of these things, can be enthused at the opportunity, a solemn opportunity indeed to direct the work of God in the congregation and thereby in the community too. A deacon can be eager at the thought of helping those in need, taking responsibility for the temporal oversight and the use of the gifts of the people of God, visiting the sick, supporting the meetings, both elders and deacons can be enthusiastic for that. But the danger is that that diligence can lag. You can start to lag in that diligence. And the word lag here means just to slump and to fall behind. And not slumping and falling behind because you're getting old, which is always a reason why we can't do some of the things we could. And neither is it because the novelty wore off. It's something far more sinister than that. It's because the devil came in, and the world came in, and the flesh came in. And all of these can contribute to you not being what you should be, or being what you were as a deacon, or an elder, or a minister, or even a member of the Church of Christ. The diligence that used to characterize you is gone. Suddenly, you're lagging in it. And that's just because the trials and the difficulties came. Because, of course, what happens is that nothing works out the way you quite imagine it. There's opposition. Uh, people don't like what you, what you do. There's stubbornness. People aren't as teachable. You're not as teachable yourself as you like to think you are. None of us are. But, lo and behold, some are very, very stubborn. There's a lack of love. You find a lack of commitment, sometimes perhaps amongst fellow office bearers or amongst the membership. A lack of commitment even to the most basic things, like coming to a prayer meeting or things of that kind. And before you know where you are, if you're not careful, it's your own work that can slacken. You begin to lag behind and you say, <coughs> Fathers aren't going to do this, I'm not going to do this. If someone else is not going to keep the door, I'm not going to keep the door. <coughs> if people aren't going to the prayer meeting, why should I go to the prayer meeting? And suddenly, the diligence begins to lag behind. And instead of opting in like you used to do, you opt out. You've got the opt-out mentality. And that can be from anything, ranging from a deacon's court meeting right through to the worship services themselves. Now, friends, the first thing I want to say about this lack of diligence and so on is that it's far more serious than either of us could think it is. Far more serious. It's extremely dangerous. In fact, it may be the case that a lack of diligence in someone may indicate that they were never really right in the first place. Now, that's quite a shocking thing to say, but it's nonetheless true. 
Think of what the writer to the Hebrews says. He's constantly warning these Christians, these Jewish Christians, against falling away from the faith. And one thing he was noticing was their lack of diligence, even in attending services. That's why he told them to neglect not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. And in that connection, he says, we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope, to the end, he says, that you do not become sluggish, lazy, indolent, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Notice the diligence, sluggishness contrast there. And, and the outcome, there are some who fall away so much that lo and behold they don't inherit the promises at all. On the other hand, there are those who recover their enthusiasm and thereby inherit the promises. The passage we read in Peter was essentially the same. Peter said, giving all diligence, add to your faith. He wants you to add things like virtue, self-control, brotherly kindness he wants you to add, and practical godliness. He wants you to add that to your faith so that you won't become short-sighted, so that you won't forget that you were cleansed from your own sins. Be more diligent, he says, to make your calling and election sure. Are you sure of your election? Are you sure of your calling? How can you be if you're no longer diligent? If you're no longer thorough? If you're no longer careful? If serving the Lord doesn't mean a lot to you, how is your calling and our election sure? We've got to be careful that we don't take our master's talent and bury it in the ground thinking we can give it back to him when he returns. I wonder how many may be guilty of that. The Lord's given you a talent. You've buried it. You're scared to use it. You'd rather stay in the shadows. But lo and behold, when the master comes back, he says, where's my talent? And he says, well, here it is just as you gave it to me. And he says, no, it's not just as I gave it to you. It's worth far less than when I gave it to you. If you had even sent it to the banker, he says, I would have got it back and I'd have got it with interest. But you did nothing. Nothing at all, because you are far more fearful of offending me than you were far more keen to serve me. Take him away, he says, and cast him into the outer darkness. That's not what we want to do with our talents and with our gifts. We are to serve the Lord. Perhaps in a way one of the most instructive examples of that doesn't so much lie in that parable as in the other parable. You remember the parable of the labourers in the vineyard? But at six o'clock in the morning there was a whole host of people ready to do a day's work. And off they went cheerfully to do it at six in the morning. By the time five o'clock in the afternoon came round, they were full of grumbling and discontent. At least those who had gone in at six o'clock in the morning were full of grumbling and discontent by five o'clock or by six o'clock in the evening. And why were they full of grumbling and discontent? After all, the Lord was giving them what they had bargained with them for. Well, it's because of the way that they did it. From 6 o'clock to 12 o'clock, they were cheerful enough. From 12 to 6, they'd lost their cheerfulness. Why? Well, we'll see that in a second as well. But be careful. Be very careful about your spirit. See it through. Do it diligently. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it for the Lord. But how do you maintain that then? But is that not where the fervency comes in? You will not lag in diligence if you maintain fervency of spirit. It's obvious that these are related. Not lagging in spirit, you can put the word but in there, but fervent in spirit, and thereby serving the Lord. What's fervency? Well, fervency, friends, is a word that means to boil or to bubble up. <coughs> Bubbling or boiling water. And it simply means, well, I mean, that's where the word comes from. And it simply means to be enthusiastic or to be zealous. To be zealous, which means that you do things to the glory of God and you do them enthusiastically because you're doing them to the glory of God. <coughs> and that manifests itself in your whole life even in your worship. You are zealous for God's glory in it. Malachi complains that when evil was taking place in a place of worship, there was no one there who would shut the doors to stop it happening. It's not an interesting thing. Things were allowed to go on in worship that some people knew they should have stopped, but no one would shut the doors to stop it. Where are you, God says? Where is your zeal? Where is the zeal of Phineas, who, when he saw that there was no one intervening, threw his javelin and intervened? And his name is still memorialized because he was zealous for the Lord. Again, when people were dancing around the golden calf in the kind of worship they used to see in Egypt, and they thought they could incorporate that into the worship of the one true and living God, it was the tribe of Levi who intervened. And from that point onwards, they were honored with the priesthood because they intervened. For the glory of God. <clears throat> when the shops and the buying and selling had been introduced in the Lord's day into the temple and into the worship, it was the Lord himself who made the whip and he purged them out. He overthrew the tables of the money changers. Why did he do that? What was his motive in doing that? Well, the disciples remembered that it was written in the psalm, Zeal for thine house hath consumed me. Zeal for thine house hath consumed me. They remembered that. And they knew that that psalm was related to the Messiah. And it was his seal for the holiness and the worship of God that motivated him to do exactly that. It boiled up. It was bubbling. He was fervent in his spirit. Phineas was fervent in his spirit. Not for them tepidness or lukewarmness, but they were fervent in their spirit. People who are fervent will certainly be diligent. And as elders and deacons, you've, you've got to be like that. And can I urge you, in this day especially, when the worship of God is just collapsing into a kind of degenerate a form of man-pleasing and entertainment, not just in the singing, but, but everywhere, maintain the worship of God in its purity and be zealous for it all the time for its holiness and its purity. In a day when there's so much carnality in the words used, in the performances made, plays, drama, everything being brought into the worship of God, keep all these things out. Have the same zeal for everything as Christians in our giving. Paul commended 
the Macedon the Christians of Achaia, because they gave so generously and zealously, with a boiling spirit, they gave to help the poor brethren in Jerusalem. Paul tells Titus that we were saved for good works. Remember that too. In fact, sorry, it's more than that. He tells us that we were saved to be zealous for good works. Keen to do that. Not reluctant. Keen to help the church of God and to help the people of God. Just two vital questions briefly. Why do you lose the zeal and how do you get it back? Uh, Well, of course, these are both subjects of separate sermons, but I just want to say a brief word about them both. How do you lose it? Well, there's an expression people use today about someone that they take their eye off the ball. What happens when we lose your zeal is that we take your eye off the Lord. It's as simple as that. Take your eye off the Lord. If you were to identify the problem with the labourers in the vineyard who began so cheerfully at six in the morning but were a disgruntled, murmuring lot by five in the evening, what was wrong with them? They took their eye off the Lord. They began full of him and his glory and his splendour and his worthiness as their Lord and Master. By the end of the day, they were comparing themselves to the other people who were working in the vineyard. How hard were they working? How come they only came in at five o'clock in the afternoon anyway? They haven't done anything like what we've done. They haven't borne the burden and the heat of the day like we've borne the burden and the heat of the day. And, you know, when you start talking like that, it doesn't really matter about the respective merits of the arguments. The fact is you've finished anyway because you've taken your eye of your Lord and your Master. When you do that, really, you're sinking. In fact, that's one of the most basic lessons you can learn in the Christian life anyway. It's taught by Peter when he walked on the water. As long as he kept his eye on the Saviour, he walked on water. The moment he took his eye off the Saviour, he sank. That's Christianity for you. That's your practical Christian life for you. Keep your eyes on the Lord, and you will have a fervency of spirit. Do it for his sake, for his glory. The smallest thing and the biggest thing. You're an elder for God. You're a deacon for God. You're a church member for God, not for people. And again, how do you retain it? Or how do you regain it? Suppose you've lost it. How do you put your eye back on the Lord again? Well, let me tell you something interesting about this text. You're you're to be not lagging in diligence. You're to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. See that expression, fervent in spirit? Well, the word spirit has the definite article in front of it. The. It's really fervent in the spirit, which opens an interesting question. Is it a reference to your own spirit or to the Holy Spirit? Um... In one important way, it doesn't really matter much. Because the key to being fervent in your spirit is to be fervent in and through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit's working in you. You you can't make your own heart bubble up. You, You can't force an enthusiasm. Well, you can, you know. In fact, sometimes I think that large waves of the church seems to exist on trying to create a few good factor and a a kind of social context in which people feel really chummy and very good together. But that's got 
nothing at all to do with the Holy Spirit. It's got everything to do with ours, but nothing to do with Him. Fervency in the Holy Spirit reminds us that the key to boiling up and being fervent lies in your relationship with the Holy Spirit Himself. I mean, He's got to be in your life. You've got to maintain this close personal walk with God. I said a minute ago, everything had to do with keeping your eyes on the Lord. Well, in the practical sense, everything has to do with maintaining that. I mean, if that's not there, the, you know, when we were young Christians, we were told that that comes first. They, they called it sometimes a quiet life, which I don't like, because it can sometimes be a noisy secret place, if it's a right secret place. A devotional life. You and the Lord, and the word of the Lord, and you calling upon God in prayer, and God speaking to you in his word. If that's not right, everything else will fall apart. Believe you me, sooner or later, everything else will fall apart because the key to bubbling up in the Lord's service is you and the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you will bubble up all right. You will be fervent, you will be keen, you'll be enthusiastic, which means that you will be diligent, you will begin things, and you will see them through because you are conscious that you are serving your great Lord and your great Master. These are not three random disconnected statements, but intricately bound together. So brethren, sisters, and above all office bearers today, don't lag in your diligence. Rather, be fervent and bubbling in your spirit because you are serving the Lord. May he bless these uh, few thoughts to us. Let's bring your service to a close then by... Turning your thoughts to our Saviour in the well-known words of Psalm 72, in verse 17. This is our motive and this is what we look to. And it's always wonderful when we see people being taken into office to think of where they were all taken from originally. The Lord has always, um, in his grace, shown his great kindness. And we're to reflect on that, his keeping and his mercies. And let this be before our eye always, that his name forever shall endure. Last, like the sun, it shall. Men shall be blessed in him. Where else can we be blessed? And blessed all nations shall him call. And that's a wonderful promise yet. These are still unfulfilled prophecies and promises. Now, blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel. That's God's people. For he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. So let it be. We'll stand to sing these three stanzas. <laughs>